Hi, thanks for joining us at Seen and Unseen Aloud. This is where you get to listen to a curated collection of the editor's top picks of our recent articles. For when you need to be eyes-free or hands-free, but still want to discover the seen and unseen. Why Did God Create the World? by Miroslav Volf Why did God create the world? For Christians, or in fact anyone, this is one of the most important big questions we almost never ask. Maybe there are good reasons we don't bother with it. For one, it is dauntingly big. It seems impossible to answer. How would we know what was in God's mind when he decided to create the world? Second, even if we could answer it, the question might not be important. Why God created the world seems far removed from our ordinary lives. Like the famous philosophical question, why is there something rather than nothing? Interesting to philosophical and theological geeks, but insignificant to the rest of us. Better devote our energies to more consequential and urgent tasks, like improving the lives of the 2.6 billion people who live on $2 a day or less. Those 2.6 billion poor are extraordinarily important. I will return to them in a moment and to how our big question matters for them. But first, let me ask you a question, a personal one. Why do you exist? I'm not asking how you came to be born. We all know the basic biology involved. I'm asking about the purpose of your life. Christians and theists more broadly have always believed we don't simply choose the purpose of our lives as it suits us, the way we may choose an outfit for a party. Our purpose is woven into the fabric of our being as God's creatures. And that takes us back to our question, why did God create the world, each one of us included? You and I are part of the web of creation, and our human purpose, like our flourishing itself, is wrapped up with the purpose of the whole creation. To ask why God created the world is at the same time to ask how to live rightly in our planetary home and what our vocation is in it. So why did God create the world? Two books of the Bible, Genesis and the Gospel of John, start with the words, in the beginning and then go on to state that God created all things. Neither says right away why, but if you trace the big story they tell that starts with creation, a clear and unified answer emerges. God created the world to be the joint home of God and humans. Here's how the story goes in each version. The arc of the story that starts at the beginning of the first book of the Bible closes at the end of the second. God creates and declares creation good. Humans sully its goodness. God calls Abraham. God delivers the children of Israel from slavery in Egypt. And all this is to fulfill the one promise, I will dwell among the Israelites and I will be their God. When the glory of the Lord fills the tabernacle at the end of Exodus, God has come to dwell with the people and led them to the promised land. God's dwelling in Israel, in the people and in the land, is the capstone of creation. 
In John's Gospel, the very last words Jesus says before he is arrested, condemned and crucified explain why the world came to be. God creates all things. God comes to dwell in Israel, takes on human flesh in Jesus Christ, reveals God's character, bears human sin and conquers evil with a single overarching purpose so that the love with which the Father loved the Son before the foundation of the world may be in Jesus' disciples. In fact, so that the Father and the Son themselves may come to the disciples and make their home with them and in them. Put simply, God created the world to dwell in it. Once the big stories of the Bible have opened our eyes to see God's homemaking purpose, It becomes obvious that the Garden of Eden at the beginning and the New Jerusalem at the end are about home. Why did God create the first humans and place them in the Garden of Eden? To help the garden flourish as their home. And why did God come to walk in the garden at the time of the cool of the day? Because the garden was meant to be God's home too, and not just Adam's and Eve's. The Bible makes the same point at its close, the very end of Revelation. John of Patmos sees the new Jerusalem coming down from heaven to the renewed earth. To make sure that John doesn't miss the meaning of what is before his eyes, a loud voice from God's throne explains, See, the home of God is among mortals. He will dwell with them. They will be his peoples. God and the peoples of the earth now have a home together. The reason why God created the world is not obscure at all. God explained it more than once. God the creator is a homemaker God. We can now return to the 2.6 billion impoverished people, many of whom are either homeless or live under conditions that are hardly worthy of the name home. Starting with poverty, I will briefly discuss four major forces opposing the original purpose of creation, obstacles to God's homemaking project. Let's think first about the economics of home, specifically about the distribution of wealth, though we could equally well explore the distribution of opportunities. How would you feel about a home in which a child and their mother lived on $2 a day? One sibling lived on $20 a day, another more privileged sibling on $200 a day, and the father had $2,000 a day for his sole use. If you could do the math, you will see that I left out the super rich from my example. They matter less than we tend to think, and often serve to relieve the bad conscience of people like you and me who belong to the global middle and upper classes. Imagine their meal. At one end of the dining room table, two family members in threadbare clothes with half-full bowls of plain rice and a pitcher of polluted water. While at the other end of the same table, the father and the other sibling, dressed in the latest fashion, enjoy culinary masterpieces and exquisite wine. If that happened in your neighbour's home, my guess is you'd be scandalised. As the story Jesus told about the rich young man and Lazarus attests, God would be scandalised as well. And yet, you and I live in just such a home, a single planetary home. 
even if you are at a loss about what exactly to do about the issue, as I am, discomfort with how far we are from God's purpose for the world is what we should feel. The politics of home closely tracks its economics. The malnourished and shabbily clad group at the one end of the table will cast longing looks toward the other end of the table. How could you blame them for wanting to partake of that sumptuous meal? As to the feasters, even if they dignify the other side of the table with their attention at all, it will be with a sense of their own superiority and to ensure that the poor are kept at a distance. For the proximity of the tribe of Lazarus could endanger their superior standing and the benefits of their privilege. Eventually some kind of wall would go up and security apparatus would be put in place. What was a single home would be divided. Lazarus, perhaps with bitterness and anger simmering in his soul, would end up in some makeshift abode. The rich man would build himself his fortress, a testimony not just to his wealth, but to his fear as well. Both would be homeless, though in a different way. One locked up in the gilded prison of his luxury and false superiority, the other mired in a life of languishing and precarity. Fundamentally, the two are brothers, Abraham's children in Jesus' story. God created each. God meant for both to live in a single home. From the dawn of history until the present day, wealth and power have been thwarting God's homemaking purpose. More specifically, our inordinate love for wealth and misuse of power have done so. For we need both wealth and power to have a home. Indeed, we could not exist at all without some form of wealth and power. Yet when they become distorted, when they acquire the monstrous features of what the Bible calls mammon and leviathan, they undermine our flourishing and undo our sense of common belonging. Mammon and Leviathan are ancient foes of God's home. It is important to be on the lookout for specifically modern foes of God's home as well. I will note here only two. Being modern, they also have modern sounding names, escalation and reification. The fancy names notwithstanding, we experience these unhoming forces every day and they too are monsters like Mammon and Leviathan. Let's start with escalation. To survive in modern societies, you have to live the way you ride a bicycle, moving forward. The moment you stop, you fall. And the thing is, it's not enough just to move at whatever pace suits you or you are able. You're in a race, whether you want to be or not, and you have to keep moving faster and faster. That's escalation. Call this monster Cursus, the racer. He distorts our experience of both time and space. First, the pace of life is accelerating. We've never had enough time. Describing the phenomenon, sociologist Hartmut Rosa writes, Amidst monetary and technological affluence, citizens of modern societies are close to temporal insolvency. For short, we are always running behind, always running whether we are on the poor or rich end of the table, we mostly rush through our meals, worrying about 
what we've left undone, catching up on the news, multitasking. Meals, like the rest of our lives, are just the speedy steps of a hamster whose wheel is spinning faster and faster. And a hamster wheel can never be a home for us humans. Second, the scope of our activities is expanding. When I was a student, we used to joke about the president of our college. What's the difference between God and Dr Kuzmich? God is everywhere and Dr Kuzmich is everywhere except here. Students today could not tell that joke without becoming themselves the butt of it. With a smartphone in their hand, they too are everywhere except here. Always somewhere else means never really at home. Home needs time and home needs presence. The logic of escalation, the monster curses, makes both hard to come by. The story that it keeps telling us is this. Where I am and what I do, who I am and what I have, are never good enough. The consequence? With curses running our lives, there is no time when I feel at home, and no place where I am at home. Now to reification, the second modern monster, whom I will call Medusa, who turns things into stone. Another term for reification is thingification. Everything that surrounds us, all God's creatures, turned into cold, lifeless things. This dynamic is all around us. It's there in the sciences, which tend to treat all entities as things. Part of the network of mathematically calculable causal relations. Modern technology does the same. To a person with a hammer, all things look like a nail, the saying goes. To a person with a tool, all things become manipulable objects. Modern medicine is a case in point. It is very successful, but that is in part because it tends to treat human bodies as machines to be fixed. For a smaller scale example of Medusa's rarefying work, return with me to Lazarus at one end of the table and the rich man at the other. Lazarus sits on a stretched up, wobbly plastic chair, fished out of a dumpster. It is a mere replicable thing for him. It serves its purpose, although rather badly. It is not an old friend with which he resonates, so that when he sits on it, he feels at one with it, at home with his chair. The rich man sits in his armchair as a king on his throne. But for him too, the chair is not an old friend. It's a thing whose essential purpose is to underscore his superiority. If anyone at the table had a better chair, he'd discard this one and go and buy himself an even better one. When people and things matter to us only as a means, but not in their own right, we don't have a home. So we have an answer to that very big question, why did God create the world? God created the world so that it might be God's home and ours. But we also have these four home-destroying monsters, Mammon, Leviathan, Cursus and Medusa. The conflict between God's homemaking and these monsters is the site of both the Christian and human calling. Jesus was God in the world on the mission of planetary homemaking. 
he gave the disciples his spirit so that they would continue his mission and do their part in helping make the world into God's home and ours. Why? Because we humans can be what we are created to be only together. And when each of us becomes a nodal point of genuinely home-like relations. Granted, we can't ever make the world into God's home. We can't even make it fully into our home. But we can live in more home-like ways. We can take the time to build resonant relationships with people and places. We can work to heal the fractures caused by those unhoming forces. We can struggle against homelessness in our cities, or work for more participatory politics and equitable economics. We can open ourselves to God's transformative presence. We ourselves can be homes of God and homemakers with God while we await the coming home of God. And that is why you need to know why God created the world. Julian of Norwich by Jane Williams Julian of Norwich doesn't seem to tick many boxes as an influencer, but her, yes, her, quietly revolutionary theology has had an impact that would probably startle her considerably. For example, T.S. Eliot quotes her in Little Gidding as he explores the delicate and unexpected grounds of hope. Julian's striking mixture of confidence and hiddenness lend themselves well to Eliot's meditative poem. It's unusual to claim authority for someone whose name we don't even know. She's almost certainly named after the Church of St Julian in Norwich, in which she spent years walled up so that she could see into church and talk to people through a little window, but never leave. But her anonymity is part of what draws us to her now. She opens a window into a world where women were largely unheard and uncelebrated. We hear so few women's voices from the 14th and 15th centuries, or indeed for several centuries before and after. Julian tells us that she was uneducated, by which she probably meant that she didn't read or write Latin, which was the cultured language of the day. Instead, she wrote what is probably the first book by a woman in English. Her modesty about her educational background also gives her the freedom to write about God without having to worry about being theologically correct. She describes a series of visions that she received from God. She makes no claim for the doctrinal purity of what she understood, so she never got into trouble, despite the fact that she describes God's attitude to us in ways that would not have met with approval by the church authorities of her day. From what God showed her in her visions, although human sin and failure is real, it is not final, and God does not judge us for it, because it is already overcome through Jesus' identification with us. Sin is necessary, but all shall be well, and all things shall be well, and all manner of things shall be well, she writes. This is not blind optimism 
but based on her experience of the character of God that she sees in Jesus. As far as Julian can see, Jesus doesn't blame us for our sin. She isn't necessarily assuming that everyone will be saved, but she is sure that God doesn't seek to judge us. She lived through the Black Death. Like so many of us now, she must have suffered bereavement. Indeed, the visions she describes were shown to her while she lay on what everyone assumed was her own deathbed. Some experts think she may have been widowed and lost children because of the way in which she writes about Jesus' maternal qualities. Her message of the invincible, trustworthy love of God is even more challenging against the background of fear, loss and death. And it springs from her encounter with the crucified Jesus. She tells us that as she lay dying, a priest held a crucifix before her eyes and she saw the figure on the cross as real and in agony. But she also saw that Jesus hangs on the cross out of his own free will so that no one can doubt the love of God. This act of suffering identification with us is the source of hope, Julian says because both Jesus' suffering and his victory over death are real. Julian also has a lot to teach us about what to do with our experience of God. On first reading, it seems that she is wholly experiential in her approach. But then we discover that she spent the rest of her life pondering what she had experienced, interrogating it for meaning, going back to God to ask for further clarification. The longer version of her manuscript was probably written 20 years after she first received the visions. She trusted her experience, but she also thought she needed to work at it and be patient with it and dig more deeply into what it meant. What I really want to do now is quote all my favourite bits from her book, The Revelations of Divine Love, but that would be a spoiler. Read her for yourself. Don't be lulled by her gentle narrative voice into missing her theological daring and passion. Theology of Modern War, A Soldier's Perspective by Owen Churton The car bomb went off at 0630 rudely awakening me from a deep sleep. The noise, big and bassy, was followed by silence, followed by the wailing of the camp attack alarm. I felt a range of emotions in those moments, but definitely present was a sense of relief. So that's what it sounds like. I'd been in Kabul for two or three months by that point, and had always been slightly on edge whenever I walked between buildings, knowing that an explosion was inevitable at some point, but not knowing how loud it would really be. Afghanistan was my first operational tour. It was 2014, and the British presence in the country was shrinking rapidly, and my reward for a good performance on my intelligence officers course was assignment to a unit deploying to the Afghan capital. It might seem a strange reward, but it was sincerely meant and gratefully received. Why does a soldier go to war? You could ask a thousand men and women in the armed forces and get a thousand different answers. 
The most straightforward and superficial answer is because I was ordered to. But delve below the surface and you find all manner of motivations and justifications. All I can offer you is why I think I wanted to join the British Army and fight. There are reasons that are probably hidden even to me. And how, as a Christian, I make sense of war. I joined the army at a time when what were known as Blair's Wars were stuttering to an unsatisfactory conclusion. We had withdrawn from Iraq, leaving behind a broken country and unwittingly paving the way for Islamic State, and soldiers were still fighting and dying in Helmand province, Afghanistan. While I was going through the selection process for the Royal Military Academy in Sandhurst, there were a plethora of war documentaries on television that had been filmed using helmet cameras, giving an unprecedented first-person view of conflict. A normal person might have watched those programmes and thought they wanted no part of it whatsoever. I saw them and wanted in. Why? I look back and think there were all sorts of reasons floating around my head. There was undoubtedly a slightly boyish sense of adventure. It seemed like most of my peers at university were off to be bankers, lawyers or management consultants. And I wanted to do something a bit less grey. There was a desire to challenge myself too, a worthier reason, but still not the full story. What appealed to me most was the responsibility of deploying to a dangerous place with your fellow soldiers and doing everything in your power to keep them alive and to complete your mission. I saw soldiering as less a job than a calling. Throughout my career, much has changed, but that sense of responsibility is still there. It is at the heart of how I understand being a Christian in conflict zones. My personal theology of war, if you like. When I came home from Afghanistan, I was asked by a friend whether I'd killed anyone. I said I hadn't. He then asked if I thought I could bring myself to do so should the situation arise. I said that I hoped so, because I had been on armed sentry duty multiple times and so was the only person standing between my colleagues and the enemy. If I had identified a suicide bomber but decided not to shoot in that moment, then I would have been betraying the responsibility I had to my friends. Indeed, I doubt that any suicide bomber would have thought worse of me had I shot him. He would have recognised that I had my job to do, just as he had his. Of course, this line of thinking is problematic. If I'm just doing my job and the suicide bomber is doing his, then in moral terms, we are surely only as good or as bad as each other. His God calls him to do his duty, and look after his brothers and sisters, and so does mine, and we are therefore equally right or equally wrong. Who is anyone to judge between us? And who am I to claim the morality of what I do for a living? And yet sincerely holding a belief does not make you right. The failings of the moral relativism are well documented, yet too often we act as the sort of people who treat Pilate's question, what is truth, as a viable philosophical position rather than as the moral evasion that it is. We in the West are jaded by complex and bloody counterinsurgencies with no clear end state, affirming Bart Simpson's dictum that there are no good wars, with the following exceptions, the 
American Revolution, World War II and the Star Wars trilogy. But the conflict in Ukraine has shown that binary wars between an obvious aggressor and a nation defending their homeland are not merely history, and that today people can still take our palms for justifiable reason. As a Christian, I am a pacifist in the sense that peace is vastly preferable to war, and I have seen firsthand the suffering and misery it causes. Yet, as a Christian too, I cannot affirm peace at all costs, when it means that rights and lives of innocent people can be callously disregarded by an oppressor who can only be resisted by force. I look at pictures of bombed-out apartment blocks in Ukraine, of kidnapped schoolgirls in Nigeria, of civilians murdered in Afghanistan, and cannot affirm anything less than this, that there are things in this world worth fighting for. I would reflect too that both my calling as a soldier and my faith have given me a sense of the value of life, not as something to be clung to at all costs, but as a gift to be made the most of. One of the things we did in our first week of Sandhurst was to make a will. There I was, fresh out of university, deciding who should inherit my meagre possessions. I didn't even have a car. And asking the bloke next to me, who I'd only met 24 hours ago, to witness my signature. To be honest, it didn't really feel real. What felt much more real was posing for a photo in the unit sports hall two years earlier, arms crossed, Union Jack and regimental flag behind me, knowing that it was the photo that would be used in the newspapers if I was blown up in Afghanistan. When you're forced to confront the fact that you might die, you start to realise what it is that you're living for. I believe in the sacredness of life as a God-given gift, which makes the idea of sacrifice, which lies at the heart of the Christian faith, all the more powerful. Greater love has no one than this, Jesus says in John's Gospel, to lay down one's life for one's friends. And you see that mutual love in tight-knit units where one soldier is prepared to die for another. I think it's that idea of living and possibly dying for something or someone more than just me is what keeps me in the army when many of those who made their wills in that room at Sandhurst have left for civilian jobs. Which brings me back to my initial reflection, that there are myriad different reasons why people join the armed forces and go to war. My Christian faith is at the heart of my reason or reasons, but I'm realistic to know that many of my colleagues do not share that faith and so would have a different motivation though perhaps not quite as different as one might think. We all have our stories to tell about why things matter to us so much that we think they're worth fighting for in whatever guise fighting takes. You've heard my story. What's yours? You Can't Live by Content Alone by Daniel Kim Apparently, Scorpio women from Gen Z are the most passionate about astrology, while Taurus Gen X men are the most sceptical. At least that's according to a delightfully insightful consumer report 
put together by PeopleStrology website with over 2,800 respondents. I'm a tourist 1995 mill man, so I'm not sure where that puts me. I'm also a trainee Anglican vicar, which may contribute more to my demographic features, but that's beside the point. We are increasingly fascinated by spirituality and religious practices. We are at a point where we can no longer assume that ticking no religion on a survey means you're an atheist or that you don't believe in a supernatural realm or a god. In fact, a report by Theos found that only 51% of people in the UK who claimed no religion also claimed that they don't believe in God. That's unreal. Another unbelievable insight from the 2022 UK religious data was that shamanism is now the UK's fastest growing religious movement. Meanwhile, hashtag witch talk had 18 billion views in 2021, even hitting the mainstream when it got its own BBC article last year. For the uninitiated, these are TikToks that introduce people to witchcraft practices. A quick wander around the Waterstones What We Recommend tables is enough to see the huge push to retrieve ancient traditions that help people navigate the spiritual wilderness of modern life. Marcus Aurelius's Stoicism and the Confucian classics are making their comeback. It goes beyond self-help. I used to work in a Soho advertising agency. I remember sitting on a teal-coloured mid-century sofa with colleagues discussing star signs and pagan mythology over coffee break. As the Christian, I was the one feeling like the cynical sceptic. That's a strange experience and feels like cultural whiplash. Flashback 10 years and secondary school in the mid-noughties and early 10s was brutal as a Christian. I watched Richard Dawkins's polemic God Delusion documentary during my RE classes and my fellow classmates laying into Christianity like it was the most vile and stupid thing in the world. Anyone who believed in a supernatural reality was equally vile and stupid. Today, the new atheist movement seems like a strange late 20th century aberration that has very much given way to a re-spiritualising world. In some cruel corners of Reddit, the new atheist is even a subject of ridicule. It's possible to discern two impulses going on in this re-spiritualisation. On one side of the heart, there are those who are reaching for the spiritual, but not the religious, wanting connection with something bigger than themselves, to provide meaning and an experience of transcendence. On the other hand, there are those who lean more religious, but not spiritual. We want something to provide structure and order to our lives. There's less of a concern about the spiritual experience, but a desire to rein in the chaotic life. I used to have agnostic friends who would pop into a Catholic mass because they like the stability of the ritual. These are two ends of a continuum, and invariably we are all somewhere in the middle. Both impulses are profoundly important ingredients to a life that is full of meaning. This, in my opinion, as an exciting and positive move in our society. It turns out that humans really can't live on bread alone, 
not least on careers, brunches or think piece articles. And we certainly can't live on content alone. There is a spiritual vacuum and we're reaching for the oxygen. But in all of this, there's a serious concern. Because wherever there's demand, there is profit to be made. And right now, there is ample spiritual demand. When reflecting on astrology's role in contemporary society, the People's Astrology Report deems it the perfect solution for our hyper-individualised culture. And the report ends with an ominous recognition that the market for spiritual consciousness and wellness will be a $3.7 trillion industry. The valuation of the spirituality marketplace and the emphasis on hyper-individualism has me seriously worried. It opens the door to the commodification of religio-spiritual practices and extracting capital value from people's genuine spiritual search. It can become a product that we use rather than a profound source of ultimate meaning. And it's already happening. Sacred Design Labs, for example, is a consultancy that looks to translate ancient wisdom and practices to help organisations develop products, programmes and experiences that uplift social and spiritual lives. Their vision is genuinely positive. It's to make the workplace a less sterile and meaningless place. Don't we all want that? However, They are also perfect examples of the trend in capitalising on this burgeoning market. To illustrate the point, one New York Times article recounts where the consultancy was hired to pull together hundreds of religious practices and categorise them by emotional states in order to give them possible uses in different corporate contexts. This exercise made the client realise how many useful tools existed inside something as old-fashioned as his childhood church. I'm glad that religious practices are getting a hearing in mainstream corporate contexts, but it saddens me to hear words like useful being used to describe them. That's only a hop and a skip away from efficient or profitable. The inconvenient truth is that this commodification of spirituality is not just something corporations can be guilty of. We as late modern individuals can be guilty of stripping religious practices out of their religious context and incorporating them into our self-care programmes. Tara Isabella Burton, author of Strange Rites, New Religions for a Godless World, calls this bespokeification of religion. As Burton notes, we risk seeing spirituality as something we can consume something for us, something for our brand. And when we turn spirituality into a product, we turn it into something trivial. The irony is that this is profoundly counterproductive. Haven't we agreed that hyper-individualism and the commodification of everything were precisely the things that led us to the spiritual vacuum we are now living in? If there was anything that Karl Marx Aldous Huxley and Billy Graham could agree on, it's at least that. Are we doomed to repeat the radically individualistic cycle of dismantling the very thing that we are desperately grasping after? Deep connection with our community, with our work, with our bodies, with our universe, and perhaps just maybe with our God. 
satisfying our spiritual hunger is about more than just increasing our efficiency and decreasing our blood pressure. It's about some of the most important questions any human individual can ask. Who am I? What am I made for? Is there a God or a spiritual dimension to the universe? Am I free or fated? What happens after I die? All these questions require us to look beyond ourselves and to stare into the wild edges of human experience. If we are going to embark on a journey of spiritual discovery, whether it's through astrology, pagan mythology, silent retreats, Tibetan Buddhism or, dare I say, Christianity, we can't let our spiritual hunger be commodified for profit. Neither can we let it shrink back to the hyper-individualism that will keep us locked away in a prison called self. Our spiritual wellness is too important for that. It is worth more, infinitely more, than $3.7 trillion, or a subscription service advertised to you on Instagram. Dating Shows by Lauren Windle. If you thought that my vicar's emphatic sermon explaining why we should stay away from the likes of Love Island would stop me watching series one to nine of the UK version, two vintage celeb series and a decent chunk of the Australian spin-off, you would be sorely mistaken. On the face of it, Reality dating shows, packed full of unobtainably attractive people, using dubious techniques to secure a partner, don't seem compatible with the life of devotion to Jesus. But I'd like to put forward the case, with strong caveats, for us all enjoying the occasional escapism of a dating show. As a tabloid journalist, I've pretty much seen it all. My love affair with reality TV started when, as an 11-year-old, I sat inches away from the screen every weeknight just to soak in the excitement of the Big Brother house. The volume was low, which meant my mum couldn't hear the housemaid's diary room confessions, but that often meant I struggled to hear it as well. I didn't care. I just wanted to be a part of it. The most eagerly anticipated element to the claustrophobic 1984 spin-off were the love stories. Mel and Randy Andy from Series 1, or Jane Goody and PJ from Series 3, we were all waiting for a romantic storyline to captivate our attentions. Dating shows had been around for a while. We all remember the happy hat-trick of ITV's Baywatch Gladiators and Blind Date on a Saturday night. The nation cosied up on the sofa to watch Scylla and Agraham introduce a new couple. On the more youthful side, Davina McCall had been dashing around shopping centres and high streets trying to get people on impromptu dates on Streetmate since 1998. But with little follow-up and no opportunity to immerse yourself into the narrative of the love story, so these held less interest for me. That all changed with the introduction of Love Island. It started in 2005 as a show most people won't remember. In its original iteration, the tropical set hosted celebrities with a £100,000 prize for the famous pair who survived several public votes. 
The fame levels were modest at best, with a smattering of 90s pop star and soap actors, and the mediocre level entertainment was enjoyed for two seasons before ITV, its broadcast channel, axed the show due to disappointing ratings. I, of course, watched and enjoyed it. Although 18 years on, I can only remember fan favourite Paul Danger Dannon kicking up a fuss about something trivial. The famed programme made a dramatic reappearance in 2015. But in the 10 years in between, other production companies had caught on. Novelty shows like Farmer Wants a Wife, Beauty and the Geek and Take Me Out cropped up. While others feigned interest in authentic connection like undateables and first dates, but still nothing followed the relationship journey from first sight to breakup and all the messiness in between. When Love Island came back, they had downgraded to regular members of the public, albeit the aesthetically elite, and slashed the prize fund to £50,000. In order to get the press coverage required for the relaunch, the producers included one contestant who was, at best, fame-adjacent. In the first series, that was Lauren Richardson, a woman who'd been at the centre of a cheating storm between One Direction's Zayn Malik and Little Mix's Perry Edwards. For series two, it was Miss Great Britain. They then moved on to little-known pop stars, landing more recently with family members of celebrities like Tyson Fury's brother Tommy, Michael Owen's daughter Gemma, and Danny Dyer's daughter, also called Danny. The first series gained some traction. There was coupling up, heartbreak, a lot of sex, and even a marriage proposal. But the show really blew up after Miss Great Britain, Zara Holland, was stripped of her pageant crown for performing a sex act on a follow Islander in series two. International media swarmed around the controversial incident and Zara was chastised for the night of passion. Alex Bowden, the male participant, was celebrated for his seduction, despite confessing to having no feelings for the model. This was when my perception of reality dating shows changed. No longer was I consuming them as an entry-level escape from reality, but because they had become influential. I realised that Love Island wasn't following the zeitgeist, but setting it. Zara's public dethroning became a feminist issue that was publicised in media outlets all over the world. From then on, ratings went through the roof and stayed at an eaves-busting level for years after. It's fair to say my 11-year-old rationale of consuming the easily digestible reality TV was ill thought through, but into my 20s I knew exactly what I was doing. Love Island began to dictate the trajectory of relationships and the everyday language we use to describe them. Suddenly everyone was adopting Islander terminology like getting pied, being rejected in a way that the receiver could deem embarrassing, grafting, laying it on thick, Factor 50, being on job and putting in a shift, all meaning courting the object of your affection. Turning your head, being involved in some capacity with a person but transferring your attentions to another and being muggy, generally disrespectful. 
Another bizarre phenomenon that evolved off the back of the show is the new previously unstated stages of dating that I find both baffling and unnecessary. In days gone by, you met someone, you dated, and you decided to be boyfriend and girlfriend. Engagement and marriage may or may not have followed. These days, it's not that simple. First, you confirm that you're getting to know each other. No longer platonic, this term signifies that you are evaluating your potential mate for compatibility, but in a very loose-handed and non-committal way. Next, you are seeing each other. This is where you have graduated past getting to know each other and are now dating. Reader, please note you are still not exclusive. The next stage in the marathon that is commitment is that you say your head won't turn. This means that theoretically you only have eyes for the other person. Again, only the foolish would consider this a commitment. The statement can be retracted under the not unlikely circumstances that your head does in fact turn. If you survive this period without whiplash from all the erratic head movements, you are in the territory of exclusivity. You are no longer open to getting to know anyone else and have put your eggs in one basket. But don't under any circumstance use the term boyfriend or girlfriend at this juncture for fear of being an overenthusiastic simpleton who doesn't understand the social etiquette. You are still in a low commitment and decidedly fragile stage. It's often after this that people will say, I love you. Apparently far easier to pronounce than girlfriend or boyfriend. And finally, when the couple are sufficiently established, one party often the male in heterosexual couples, but not exclusively, will stage an elaborate proposal-style event in order to pop the all-important boyfriend-girlfriend question. Candles, rose petals, treasure hunts, and any manner of other paraphernalia be known to be involved. (laughs) Exhausted? This 34-year-old wants to curl up in front of an episode of Last of the Summer Wine with a cup of Horlicks just thinking about it. But am I pleased I understand it? Absolutely. This is how the younger people in our lives are now operating. No longer are people turning to teachers or parents or churches for advice, if they ever did. They're taking their tips from bikini-clad hotties on the box. It's the blind leading the blind. A few years ago, I was in my church and the children and youth pastor was heading out to run a Bible session at a nearby girls' secondary school. As she left, she told me they would be talking about Love Island. A few weeks prior, one of the female contestants had lamented the sexual relationship she had had with one of the men before he promptly turned his head for a new arrival. She had assumed that their shared physical intimacy was implicit of commitment, and he disagreed. The teenage girls had discussed, in depth, how they would have felt under the same circumstances. They debated how to know when you are in an exclusive relationship and therefore able to step up your sexual contact. Having just seen a woman desperately upset at her treatment, they were far more open to hearing about the emotional consequences of rushed intimacy. It was one of the most powerful, teachable moments she'd had with these young women, who were far more primed to learn from the regret of the influences that they admire than the square church leader who joined them once a week. 
More recently, two more shows have joined the heady heights of Love Island's impact levels. Love is Blind and Married at First Sight. The former is an American Netflix series where individuals are put into pods and can't see their dates. They have 10 days to romance the 15 members of the opposite sex, sight unseen. Contestants only progress to the next stage, where they meet and go on holiday together, if they decide to get engaged while still in the pods. In Married at First Sight, which has a UK version but is revered mainly for its explosive Australian series, a couple is matched by an expert panel and they first meet at the altar. In response to the most frequent of all the frequently asked questions around this show, the wedding is not legally binding, so couples who choose to stay together will often have a second legitimate ceremony. Equally, the vast numbers of pairs who don't work out do not need to file for divorce. We are all in a position of influence, whether that be at work, online or even just in our own homes. Therefore, surely we have a responsibility to understand the other forces that shape our world. Genuinely, whether a young person watches it or not, Love Island and these other programmes will affect the tone and expectations of their relationships, particularly romantic. There is a key and very sensible argument for those of all faiths and none to avoid these shows. My vicar's reasoning was, and still is, completely valid. What we fill our eyes, heads and hearts with is what we become. No one is immune from influence by the things they engage with. Christians are encouraged to let a lot of that stuff be good, godly things, and to focus on that which builds us up and enhances our relationships with him and with each other. Realistically, it's unlikely we'll find this enhancement through the medium of dating shows. There are a few circumstances under which I think people are best giving dating shows a wide berth. If you are all consumed by the idea of being in a relationship and this longing is affecting your daily life, do yourself a favour and stay away. We mustn't allow the lie that romantic relationships are the be-all and end-all to soak in. And we're on dangerous ground when we start to believe intimacy is to be rushed into to win popularity and prizes. When it comes to placing the right level of importance onto romantic love, these shows aren't helpful. They don't celebrate the incredible joy and value of being single. If you don't couple up, get engaged in the pods or decide to stay in your first sight marriage, you're out. That's not what, as a Christian, I believe. Being single is not a stage to graft your way out of. You're not less valuable if you're not picked to couple up. The Bible is really clear that whether for now or for life, being single comes with benefits and in many ways is preferable to being in a relationship. The key role models that Christians hold dear as examples of our faith, Paul, John the Baptist, even Jesus himself, were single. Getting into a relationship isn't winning or levelling up. It's exchanging one state with its perks and challenges for another state with its perks and challenges. Being single does not demonstrate inferiority or unattractiveness and those in relationships are not superior. 
Second, if you are struggling with your body image, be kind to yourself and do your best to avoid the taut and toned bodies on reality shows. The scantily clad contestants prancing about in their swimwear are unlikely to introduce genuine perspective into your thinking. Dating shows do make people feel that their perfectly normal and healthy body shape is in need of a crash diet and weightlifting session. You don't need to be super thin and magazine cover ready to find love. We all know this in theory, but there are plenty of people who still feel that they'll be more successful once they've shifted those last few pounds, finished Invisalign or toned up their abs. This is nonsense and these thoughts must be rejected every time they creep in. Getting on top of intrusive thoughts is something people talk about all the time, but it's scientifically proven that the more you try to suppress a thought, the more you focus on it. Google Wegner's white bear if you want to check the receipts. I use a different framework for stopping unhelpful beliefs from settling in. Taking those thoughts captive and make them obedient to Christ. This may sound like an airy-fairy spiritual message, but it's straightforward and practical. If a thought comes to my mind that I know is damaging, rather than letting it fester or attempting to fight it, I acknowledge it. I pray to God, telling him that I'm handing that thought over and I reject it from my life. It's as simple as that. Finally, kindness must be a priority in a way that these shows don't demonstrate. Being true to yourself is all well and good, but it's often used as a blanket excuse for poor behaviour. We see this time and time again on Love Island, when a contestant justifies their wandering eye by saying they have to do what's right for them. Sometimes you don't. Sometimes you have to do what's most considerate for the people around you. I'm sorry, did I say sometimes? I mean all the time. That doesn't mean staying in a relationship that isn't right for you, but it means having an open and caring conversation with that person before your head turns or you've pulled someone else for a chat. Maybe we should all watch reality dating shows from time to time. But when we're taking our lessons on body image, self-worth, relationships and love from these shows, that's when we're going wrong. Personally, I prefer the Bible. Thank you for listening. Remember to subscribe to this podcast to get more curated articles from Seen and Unseen Aloud. We hope you discover a world that is greater, more full of meaning and sense than you ever imagined.